0: Get ready to strap in for another exciting episode of No Driving Gloves, where Derek, John, and Will will use over 75 years' combined industry knowledge to bring you a bare-knuckled view of the collector car hobby. So let's get rolling. We're back again this week. Been a kind of a busy, exciting week for all of us. Uh, the downloads are up, obviously getting some listeners and striking a chord. And we're going to kind of, I'm going to say one of my hobbies in addition to podcasting and cars is kind of making, and we're going to touch on that making subject tonight a little bit. And all of us are going to kind of talk about the highs and lows about what we do in the shop when we're building cars, restoring cars, preserving cars, kind of things that we really enjoy, that, you know, what makes us have a good day, this things that get put off to the very end of the restoration you know we always have the little list i don't really want to tune that carburetor or polish that piece and it gets put off put off put off and it's the last thing on the car how are you guys doing tonight will or Derek? doing good just
1: uh hanging out and ready to talk about my favorite things about building hot rods and you know some of the dislikes about it as well
0: it's all fun
1: it is it
2: is it's all fun
0: is Derek out there somewhere yeah i'm doing good i'm doing good yeah,
2: just, uh, been busy with work and doing some stuff in the garage here at home, playing with some of the cars, having a little fun and, you know, looking forward to a fun conversation tonight, talking about our uh, favorite things and, you know,
0: playing with our cars and, and doing the work we do. Well, you have that envious job of being self-employed and you get to do whatever you want at work. Is you, is the highlight of your day when you go in and get a fire an employee or is it something else?
1: Oh, yeah, getting to do whatever I want to do, um... Uh, not not necessarily the case, but you know, owning your own business definitely has uh, it has its good points and its bad points. And I guess we'll start off with with one of the bad things about building cars and and owning your own business is the aftermarket parts that are available. Are you know? Don't get me wrong; there are some great companies out there that make excellent products. But that's one of the biggest things that we have is You know we we bring a car in and we use a lot of after aftermarket electronics and you know if something goes bad you know it could be a very costly fix for for the shop uh you can't charge the customer twice so say you got a you know an aftermarket electronic device that's hidden way up under the dash of a hot rod and it goes out and car's not running right or the gauges ain't working right or you know something's not acting right you know you got to fix it and one you generally have to buy a new part and then two you have to install the part and sometimes just finding the problem is very costly as well so uh, that's that's definitely one of the negatives uh doing this uh and relying on the aftermarket we try to use OEM products or parts and pieces as much as we possibly can sometimes that's just not an option we're trying to figure out how to put a rotary shift knob out of a new uh, Ford Fusion in a car right now that's uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's going to be rather uh, rather difficult to do but nobody in the aftermarket offers a twist knob uh shifter so uh, which I probably wouldn't use it anyway because it it, it would probably fail pretty quick. Is That's...
0: that some is that something you guys are designing all the electronics for and to making that piece work? Or are you trying to utilize a lot of the Ford stuff? Or do you? I mean, it's hard enough for me to comprehend how the the rotary shift knobs work because it's all electronics, and I'm assuming some sort of servos, etc., or all ECU computers.
1: It, you know, honestly, it's really not that difficult all these cars with paddle shifters you know it's all the same thing it's just a knob instead of a paddle on the you know on the steering column and then all you know every car every new car now pretty much has an electronic shifter whether it's a twist knob or or a shifter thrown up on the dash somewhere or some funky location you know it's all electronic and there's just uh the shifter just talks to you know a motor that moves in increments to pull it from park to neutral to reverse down to drive and then two and one and et cetera theoretically, it's not that difficult now what's the the difficult part is making everything talk with each other, so you got to make the knob you know one click it go in reverse well, how far is it going to travel? How far does it need to travel on a Chevrolet transmission? You know that that's the that's the difficult thing of, of figuring all of this out. So we're we're going to try to utilize some of the Ford components, and then we'll probably have to actually make uh, a few components as well to make all of that talk to each other, so to speak. We're looking forward to it. It's it's, it's a challenge. I know we're kind of getting off subject already. It'll it'll be a combination of oe ford parts and then you know some aftermarket parts
2: so now my Where'd question will is was that the owner's idea of how they wanted the car built or is that a, an idea you guys had at the shop and if it if it is the uh owner's idea does that mean the owner is one of your least favorite parts of of, <laughs> of the build <laughs> because they come up with these crazy ideas of things they <laughs> want to see <laughs>
1: Um, no, actually, that was one of our ideas at the shop. I pitched it to the owner and he liked it. So, but some of the owners are very hard to deal with. <laughs> I,
0: I was going to point out, remember, Derek has I think, spent almost his entire life in museums and never had to work for the customer. <laughs> and the customers now, now, can now, be, I, the,
2: I, I still do some, you know, private conservation consulting with, with clients. So I, I do get to work with, you know essentially, customers sometimes.
0: Well, I I think Will stayed on topic, though, because he, he, in telling his biggest dislike, or one of his biggest dislikes, and that's the electronics and the poor quality of a lot of the aftermarket components, which it would be really nice if the general public understood how bad aftermarket components are. He also, I think, went into probably one of the fun things that I think he gets to do is creating and designing and making, you know, overcoming the challenge of, first of all, putting a Ford part on a Chevy part and making it work, doing something nobody else has done. I mean, it's really easy if you can pick up your insert, whatever racing catalog and order the part and bolt it in and everybody can do it. It's kind of cool when you sit down and actually think that you actually engineer something that, you know, the aftermarket's not doing and nobody else is doing on a big scale and anybody that is doing it is designing it their way
1: yeah you're you're exactly right john that that is probably my favorite thing of building hot rods is being able to be creative and having a customer like the guy we're doing this for which it happens to be my uncle to let us get creative and let us be a little different and and understand that you know it don't happen overnight. I mean, these cars are very, very, very costly to build. And one of the reasons is that is you are being different, but you're, you're trying to be different, but cool. And that's, that's, that's hard to come up with. And, you know, we have help, we have help with, with some designers and that, that kind of help us get over the hump on, on some things. But that, that's ultimately my favorite thing to do is, when one of the guys come comes in through the office door and says, Hey, come look at this. Let's, let's come up with an idea for this part or this piece, or how, how are we going to attach the steering column? Just little things like that really separates a creative hot rod builder and just a, an aftermarket part hot rod builder.
0: It's one thing I've always enjoyed when I've come to your shop with either a group or just myself to tour, and you're pointing out little things that you know, I would have never thought of the integrating of the um, GTR door handles into a Chrysler product for a street ride. And it just you just never even think, you know, I never thought, well, cross-nationalities, let alone cross-manufacturers. And, you know, I commend you on, you know, seeing something on such a reasonably rare car, especially at the time you were building that Chrysler product. It was... You know, amazed me, and it's something that stuck out of my head. Not to mention the thousand other little details you did.
1: Yeah, that that car actually has uh, some Ford products on it, late model Chrysler parts on it. It's actually got some Chevrolet parts on it, believe it or not. The late model Hemi in that car actually has a big block Chevrolet water pump. So, uh, just to get the look that we wanted under the hood the factory front cover and the water pump on them cars were just huge and massive and ugly. So we wanted to really clean that up. And so we come up with a new billet, machined uh, machine front cover that adapted uh, a big block Chevrolet water pump, which are kind of small, nice and clean and, and tidy looking and then built everything else around it. You know, do, doing that is, 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 probably my single most favorite thing when building and designing these state-of-the-art hot rods that we do.
0: See, you you, you must have a really good relationship with your, your local parts supplier because I'll walk in and I'll tell them I'm working on X vehicle and they'll say, well, here's your water pump. And you go, no, no, I want this water pump. And they're going, no, that doesn't fit. You want this one. And there's one of my biggest you know, issues, I guess, when it comes to restoration or building cars or, you know, some of the custom stuff. I want this piece and they won't sell it to you because the computer says it doesn't fit. I mean, I go back 25 years and I was building my Azuzu, convertible Azuzu pickup with a Corvette motor in it and I wanted mufflers for it and they wouldn't sell me mufflers off the shelf because those mufflers don't fit an Azuzu with a four-cylinder. Well, it's not an Azuzu with a four cylinder. And we had a conversation about junkyards and being creative. And now the parts stores don't let you be creative and it could be one of the reasons it's so much easier. I have yet to have Amazon ever really argue with me. It'll tell me the part won't fit, but it'll still sell me the part.
1: (laughs) That's right. Well, I'm pretty fortunate in that being that, um, we do have a local parts store just uh, a mile down the road and the guy who manages that store, his son works for me. So <laughs> we, we we can call and tell them what we need and it, there's no questions asked. And they know that we're not, we're not doing the normal stuff. So they'll actually kind of go out of their way and actually help us out on some of this stuff. The more difficult side of things is when you need a new uh, OE part, and you got to come up with VIN numbers, like the GTR door handles you mentioned, to buy any GTR parts at that point in time. Because I mean, they weren't out, but maybe six months when we got those door handles, we had to have a VIN number to buy door handles. So coming up, so letting somebody borrow your VIN number to buy parts was uh, was kind of difficult to find, but you know, it, it worked out. We generally always find a way to get the parts that we need and. You know, worst case scenario, if if they're not out there, we'll just make them ourselves.
0: Again, it's having that challenge or that fun in the challenge, the the thrill of the hunt, and being successful in it. So I can see that.
1: And then, and then that kind of falls into uh, another one of my favorite things is is actually making parts to go on these cars, whether they're machined, whether they're handmade out of sheet metal, or hand whittled out of you know a piece of aluminum um whatever you know that's definitely another one of my favorite things to do is is the fabrication side of these cars you can be as creative as you want to be cuz you can make you can make it however you want to make it whether you know it's it's a simple sheet metal inner fender or a super complicated dash that you've built from scratch you know you can you can go whatever direction you want to go with it.
2: Yeah, and I think Will, you know, it's interesting because as Will talks, you know, I'm I'm sitting over here listening, thinking, you know, it's it's very similar. Favorite things about the hobby and you know restoring or doing the conservation work, things like that. But it, it's it's flipped just a little, I guess, is what I'll call it. You know, Will talked about enjoying you know the the build and the engineering of it. Uh, one of the things that's a a thrill for me is when I get a car out that hasn't been running in decades, starting that project is actually essentially the reverse engineering of it. Yeah, there's been a lot of cars in in my career so far that the only one left in existence or one of only a few left in existence and no one has a, a manual that you can go to on, okay, this is how it runs. So you just start we're reverse engineering it and figuring out, you know, okay, this, you know, lever does this, this control does that, you know, because especially at earliest days of the automobile, nothing was standardized, you know, every lever, every pedal did something different on every different make of car. So there, there's always that challenge, and I, I guess I find that extremely interesting and and a, a fun part of the work that i do um you know, with the cars and in the earlier um world of the automobile and then we'll just also you know you just talked about you know machining parts and and getting creative and doing this and you know running down to the parts store and looking for something and that's uh, another f- one of my favorite things is is you know making the parts and and machining them but in in a little bit different sense because a lot of the cars i tend to work on I can't call up the auto parts store and say, "Hey, I need a part for this car." You know, at my last job, nineteen twelve Sandusky truck, um, the the last surviving Sandusky truck um, known to still exist, and you know, the carburetor was missing. Well, the the actual uh, one of the adjustment knobs on the carburetor was seized up and and worn on the on the carburetor. And, you know, had to free it up, clean up the the threads and everything on the the part it mounted on. But the, the actual control knob itself was junk. I mean, it just, it wouldn't work right anymore. So I stood at the lathe for probably about an hour or so, machining it, you know, making sure it looked exactly the same as the worn, you know, the worn part would have looked originally um, when it came out of the factory. So kind of... Yeah, you know, where will you have that kind of freedom of, of creating something that looks clean and cool and you know, the way you kinda of want the car to look in your, you know, the the hot rod world. I get that enjoyment out of remaking the part exactly as it, it historically was. So those are some kind of the things that I really, really enjoy. Yeah, you know, getting
1: getting a car running like you said that hadn't been running in 50, 60 years, 70 years would, if you're a car guy and you don't like that, something's wrong with you. You know, I mean, that's just, that's just freaking awesome. And it's the same way here at the hot rod shop is, yeah, we use a lot of later model motors and fuel injection and stuff like that. But hearing a car bust off for the first time, you know, in your shop after it's had every nut, every bolt, every panel massaged and worked and you know there's just there's something special about that moment of hearing any car fire up for the first time after a restoration or or after it's been you know converted to a hot rod or or even you know John, I'm sure you've had a lot of experience with this these old race cars and stuff that that y'all get y'all's hands on and get them fired up for the first time.
0: I call it a bittersweet feeling. People always think, oh boy, you're done and you're getting it started. But sometimes, I'll be honest, the restorations take so long, sometimes you're just glad that it's leaving your bay. And it's it's one of the, I'm going to say it's one of the happier things because it's leaving my bay and I get to go into another project because those last 100 hours or 150 hours of a restoration they're doing all that stuff that I put off that I did not want to do in the beginning or as I was putting it together. So it's always the cruddy work and you didn't want, I I never wanted to do it and it's my fault for putting it off to the end. And then when I'm done with it, get it in, fire it up. Yay. It can leave. And then the, uh, st- you know, I guess to add to it, it gets really good. Then when you get in it and it drives and it drives the way it's supposed to, and you can enjoy it and you get out on the road with it. That culmination of finishing is has a lot of different levels of euphoria for me. I'm very happy I'm done with it, and I get a new project, and I get to start those creative juices again. As Derek said, machining, finding the parts. We always try to find whatever original parts possible. Granted, a lot of what I work on is very low production, but fortunately, a lot of the parts on it were off mass-produced automobiles, you just have to know what the interchange manual is and that interchange manual comes with years of experience they didn't publish them you know you can't find a interchange manual on a car they only built 20 of you just have to know where those parts might be but when you can't find them you've got to make them and in my life it's ranged from it you know making anything from little pieces of rubber to you know grommets to you know, whole car bodies. I'm not, As I've said before, I can do it. I'm not the fastest, but there's ways of getting it done.
1: Yeah. That brings up another side of it that I guess it depends on the customer and the car, uh, a happiness versus sadness of when these cars go home. You know, there's, there's been cars that we've worked on continuously for over three years. So, you kind of grow, uh, you grow attached to these, these vehicles. So, um, and you grow attached to certain ones more than you do others. The ones that, you know, are more to your liking, you like better. And the ones that, you know, not really your style, then, you know, you, you don't mind seeing them go home. But, uh, the last car that, that went home out of our shop, you know, that, that wasn't a, a happy day for me because I really liked that car. I liked it being around. I liked putting all the shakedown miles on it. And then you get some that you're you're glad to see them go. You're you're tired of working on them. Uh, you, you're you're glad to see them go home to their to their owner. Of course, you're gonna see them again because something's gonna happen with those aftermarket parts and they're gonna be back. But that's kind of a bittersweet thing with building these cars too.
2: Yeah. You know, John mentioned that, you know, I've spent a lot of my career in uh, most of my career in the museum world and um not dealing with a lot of customers. And, and I guess, you know, sitting here listening to you guys talk, I kind of laughed, laughed to myself in my head here. Maybe, maybe that's my, uh, my way of being selfish, uh, in this, in this hobby, in this career is, you know, I, I work at the museums where, you know, I get the car running and, they stay at the museum, and I'm the guy that takes care of them, and, and when they come out to run, I'm the one that runs them. Uh, I don't ever have to send them home with somebody else. It, until I, I leave the institution, they're they're just kind of there for me to operate and, you know, become kind of part of my, my world. So maybe that's just me being selfish in that way.
0: <laughs> There's a good and bad about that anymore. I've spent the last 10 years where I'm at, which is a museum, so the cars never go home. There's some cars I really wish would go away. <laughs> they just <laughs> There's some bad memories. We, we love them all. I mean, I guess the, they really become your children. I mean, like Will said, that's three hours of his shop. And that's not three hours of Will's life. That's three out or excuse me, not three years of not just hit Will's life. That's three years of six or eight different guys' lives at 2,000 hours a year. It take you you you've, you've birthed this thing. It's like a child, at least to me. I I I'll be honest. I don't have children, but it's it's that kind of thing. As much as they annoy you, and much as they hate you, and like I said, as much as I want to see some of them go home, it's nice to be able to go visit them and remember them, and then be able to share them with other people. And there's some cars when I was doing commercial restoration and doing it for customers, I'm still attached to the cars. I love seeing it when they pop up in magazine articles. I try to interject myself into, oh, I was part of that lineage's life. And it really makes you feel proud of, of some of the stuff that goes home that you never see again, but you get the little snippets of and it's doing well in the world. Or you bump into one of these customers, even if they were a a pain while you were working on the vehicle, they're always happy, they always enjoy it, and they always are thanking you for what you did. Even if you gave them something that broke a few miles down the road and had to come back in and be repaired, they're always thankful because you were such a part of their life for, you know, a a restoration, 2,000, 3,000 hours, so two, two years. You were with this person, talking to this person weekly. Will's the same way, multiple years on projects, and these people become your friends. No matter how much we'll sit here and say they can be pains, it's that satisfaction of making them happy and sending them away happy.
1: Yeah, I can honestly say that we've had a lot of customers at Big Oak Garage, and every one of them, but two, I, I call my friends. I didn't, most of them, I didn't know when they walked in the door. Um, but if they called me right now, I, I would, I'd give them the shirt off my back. And even if it was a car that was built at another shop and they needed me to come help, yeah, I'd I'd be there in a heartbeat, you know? So that's another great thing about our industry and, and what we do is 99% of the time your, your customers are going to become, uh, your family, you know? And, um, I can honestly say that's that's how it is here. Uh, we we become close to our customers and 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 at the end of the day, at the end of the build, regardless if it's a small build, you know, a a, a six month build or or a or a three year build, we always we always generally always wind up becoming super good friends and 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 hanging out a lot more than you know than we ever have.
2: Yeah, and I think a big part of that is uh, even. Kind of what John alluded to with you spend so much time on it kind of becomes almost like your kid um you know you've brought in some ways we bring life to these vehicles you know like like will just said you know if, if one of the owners called you up and you know you've gotten to know them through the build process and and working with them as your customer your client, part of it is that you meet some really great people and um, you become friends with them, but it also plays into the fact that it's, it's kind of like that's your baby out there, and and it's having a problem. I g- I got to go rescue it, you know. So it's not only that we you know you meet the friends, and and kind of in the in the realm of what I do, you know, it's the other museums. I kind of do you know private work for um, you know getting cars running for you know different um, institutions, and and going back for special events and operating the cars for them. I've met a lot of great people at different muse, small museums all around the area that have one or two cars in their collection, and, you know, you build a great relationship with them, but it's also that kind of going back to take care of that, you know, almost kid that you've you've brought life to again, and, and you want to just see it keep to, you know, keep up and, and keep going and, and be able to be out there and running and driving and, and having everyone enjoy it.
0: We had that experience with you, Derek, in the first weekend that I met you. Is When you go to a lot of these car events, the, the joy is seeing the things run, and the people are the best part of the car hobby, and you just want to help them out. And the weekend you were visiting us, we had an issue with one of the cars in the collection, and it's a little bit off our core collection, and you helped us diagnose some of the issues and what the problems were, and, you know, lend a hand to the best that you can, could in that situation, and there's a huge event going on, so the repairs couldn't happen that weekend. But I think if we would have put the wrenches in your hand and said, had at it, or have at it, you would have dove in just as hard as any of us to work on these cars. Um, and chatting with some of my friends that recently returned from Goodwood, it's that car- camaraderie over there. If people were having problems getting their cars running to do the run up the hill every mechanic was over there helping them trying to get through that problem as long as they were taken care of they were there then there to assist and I've seen that at various concours where the cars need to run and need to operate and if somebody has an issue you need a jump you need you need a tool you need a 10 millimeter spanner you need something somebody's gonna go grab it and find it in in their tools. Or do whatever they can to help you. If you need a push start, if you need pushed across the block because you have a race car and race cars really don't, you know, some cars don't like running at parade paces. So you you need help. Everybody's always there to help you. Even this, I want to say the stodgiest, richest people in the world that don't want to get dirty. When it comes to helping out the other car people, 99 out of 100 times, they're there to help you no matter what. And, you know, w- when we came up with this topic, I think we were talk- thinking, and we'll probably touch on it, some of the creating and some of the working with the tools, and we've touched on machining and dealing with electronics. But now we've focused the last 10 minutes on the people. And by far and away, that's what makes my job the most rewarding, is either the person who comes in who's happy about seeing and learning, or the person who was there in the day and they're seeing their their old their child brought back to life and they can visit him again and they have the ability to see that.
1: Yeah, you you know you mentioned the people and that ultimately that's um uh, it's the same way in the hot rod industry. You know, I I remember being a kid, you know, in the back seat of my dad's 56 Chevrolet driving cross country and if if you saw another old car broke down on the side of the road, you pulled over and stopped and helped. You know, it didn't matter if you'd ever met them before in your life or not. And, uh, and I still find myself doing that. I'll be going down the road and there'll be an old car on the side of the road with the hood up and I'm with my wife and family and heck, I just pull over and see what I can do to help. And, you know, I, I guess the whole car, just car people are generally you know very good people and um fun to be around
0: well i i saw, well i didn't see you do it i was somewhere else in the same traffic jam in columbus and you did that you, you were tied up in traffic moving at a snail's pace like all of us were but you saw some other guy from from the event who was broken down on the side of the road asked if you could help he had already called the tow truck but you still pulled over, helped him out. And if I understood that right, you got him running and going. And, you know, I guess he abandoned the tow truck. Yeah, we, we did. Right,
1: we sure it did. It was
0: ru- right right, there in the middle of rush hour traffic. And you, you had dinner plans and you, you had to make these arrangements. And you still, you know, you stopped and helped. And, again, it that doesn't happen. I mean, guys in modern cars we just drive down the side of the road and go, oh too too bad hope they have roadside yep. but it, when you're work working with these classic cars people stop and they help you maybe it, they shouldn't and some of them aren't qualified but it's it, it's one thing the classic cars do is that you know they they we we really emphasize that the, the people are usually enjoyable in this hobby so let's get back to try, try to bring the the train a little bit back on track and we we've established that we're all great people and, uh, the, <laughs> the listeners fall into that too, because I'm assuming if you're listening, most of you are car people or understand car people.
1: Derek, are you a great person? What? Are you sure?
0: I, I think so. And you know, for any of our listeners, if you're broke down on
2: the you know side of the road, uh, go ahead and just wait. Will or, uh, John or myself will <laughs> be there
0: someday, uh, to pull over and help. you? That's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um,
0: I'm sitting here thinking of what some of the things that I really enjoy and what I really enjoy when it comes to my restorations or the museum work I do is the research. I I love the stories behind the the artifacts, the cars, finding out that little bit of trivia that makes the whole difference in the restoration. And it involves a lot of reading and Go, you know the Google searches, but a lot of times you'll do a Google search and you've got to read all this endless, mindless drivel that has been written. You've read 16 times, but there's one sentence or one paragraph in one article that all of a sudden provides that key to answer your question, but it's just alludes to something else, and then you have to take that information... And it puts you on a new new search road to fully figure out and document what's going on there. And you I know, say, that's one of the things that I enjoy the most is that that little bit of a treasure hunt. The map's there, but it's being able to utilize the map and then taking the clues off of the map and adding more more information and more information. And it's it's I want to say it's that old pirate's treasure map, but the X isn't there. You're trying to find that that x spot and finish. So again, one of the things I enjoy is that research side of it. And then on the teardown side, it's dirty and icky and I'll be I'll be 100% honest. I do not like getting dirty. I don't like getting dirty. I don't like getting sweaty. I don't like grease and I work on cars and I take apart cars. But if you're in there media blasting something or using the ultrasonic cleaners to clean up something and going through multiple layers of paint and finish and grease and grime to find that to find out what it's supposed to be those little discoveries and then being able to prove it and hopefully I really enjoy proving people wrong it's one of those little satisfactions there's two license plates I bought when I was in Vegas many many years ago love to win and hate to lose and the more I do this, the more you learn those two license plates don't mean the same thing. And I love winning. And I love creating a theory behind some of my restorations and then being able to prove that theory right. It takes a lot of work to do that sometimes. And a lot of times I prove myself wrong. But I love winning. And it's it's so so great when you find out that this finish is correct or... Um, I'll allude back to a uh, Packard Cloverleaf Roadster that I restored. And it was funny to find that it was a, uh, was a 1917 car. And in 1916, these Cloverleaf Roadsters, and in 17, they only built eight of them. I think they built 23 of them total over the whole model run between 1916 and 1919 or 1920. In 17 and 18, they didn't have a bit of chrome on them because it was the war in the conservation effort of the war, and they didn't want to waste the metal, and they didn't want to waste the chrome plating. But what we learned is they were chrome plated. They were chrome plated and then painted black to hide the chrome. It's the leftover parts that were produced from 16. It's kind of the finish on it correct, and I've, I've got period photos of these pieces being black, but the pieces that came on the car that I was working on and then talking to others and they all said, Oh yeah, those, those are always Chrome. You just have to just paint the Chrome. Don't do, don't scuff up the Chrome, just paint the Chrome. And that's what you get. Or the crankcase on that, that car, there's a f- famous guy that sells a lot of engine paint and what he says goes. And the client we had disagreed with him. And eventually I was able to pl- prove the client right and this gentleman wrong, and we ended up having to custom make our engine paint. And I don't know how well that translates. I don't hang out with that many teens Packard anymore. But just put it this way, our research indicated that that motor should not be the traditional Packard green. It was more of a Bell telephone green. This is what the owner believed in in looking at, photographs and documentation of cars from this era it wasn't that green it was this looked like the bell telephone trucks if any of you are old enough to remember the late 70s and early 80s before the ma bell breakup so those are little areas that like i say i enjoy it's that personal satisfaction of being right
2: yeah i think that's probably one of the uh, things i enjoy As well in this, especially being in the the museum field uh, for as long as I've been in it and having the opportunity to be involved in some of the cars that I've been involved in is the historic research because, you know, you can, you know, you can work in a museum and yes, we know the history of a car, but there's always the little things, Um, you know, like John, you were pointing out the little details that maybe they're not always captured in the history as well as they could be. Yeah, you know, I'm thinking of of a couple projects I worked on um, over time, and and probably one of the more interesting ones was the 1903 Packard Old Pacific, which was the second car to ever cross uh, the United States, running from California to New York. You know, the history on that car is fantastic. It was a well-documented journey, you know, with a lot of photographs, a lot of uh, news articles written about it as it was going across the United States you know those details were there but there were little things along the way that you know kind of were questions as as I was working on it as we were digging into it you know well when did when did this part get replaced you know cuz this clearly isn't an original packard part or you know why does you know why does this gear seem so low you know compared to other 1903 packard model f's um and when you start reading more of the documentation and and digging up especially tom fetch who drove the car across country his actual diary of the journey you start finding out all these little details and you know, reading some of the packard literature that was turned out on the car you know the first time we drove it you put it in low gear in first gear and you'd start off, and you know you'd get going a little ways, and you'd let off the the throttle, and it, it's got a hand clutch on it, so you'd have to reach over and throw the clutch out, you shift it into second. By the time you were getting ready to pull the the uh, clutch back in, the car'd almost be at a dead stop. It just and and what we found reading in the literature is that one of the things Packard did to the car before it left for the journey was put a lower gear ratio in first gear, so that it would have better chance of climbing the hills and mountains on the journey you know so little details like that okay well you know we'll start it in second gear and make it easier on ourselves you know when we're running it the car has a a terrible lean to it it actually if i remember it leans in the front uh low to the uh left side of the car if i remember the the lean correctly and in reading tom fetch's journal. All of a sudden, we find I found an entry where he talked about going across, um, going through a, basically a ravine area, and had to cut across a, a stream at the bottom of this, you know, ravine, and started driving in uh, at a forty-five degree angle, and evidently they missed spotting a, a hole in the stream, a deep spot. And the car fell into fell into this, you know, deep spot. They had to work it out. His quote directly after that was, the car never seemed to sit right after that. And the description he gave, the left front wheel fell into the hole and it jarred the whole suspension on the car so that it, it at, after that point, had a lean to it. Um, so it's finding those little things. And it's really an interesting kind of process that you go through to find those Um, even on my personal cars uh, you know my 1917 Overland I try to track the history back so I know the owners where the cars have been as much as possible and you know so far I've got it back to probably the mid-1950s when it was actually at a dealership in Cincinnati, Ohio area it actually was the William uh, Shote dealership I have a terrible time pronouncing that last name, but they're the family that owns the um, uh, Cincinnati Reds, and or at least part owners. Um, But it has the original decals still stuck on it um, from the dealership. And, you know, I was able to track it starting with that, and then actually worked it forward through its time in the AMC collection, American Motors car collection. And then into the Chrysler Museum collection, um, which is where I purchased the car. You know, and I'm I'm getting excited to dig into the history of my Peerless that I acquired a little over a year ago. I haven't had a chance to dig in, but, you know, it's it's one of the fun things to, you know, be able to learn the history and, and tell the story of the car when you have it out, you know, at shows or driving around and people ask about it.
1: Yeah, I enjoy that that part of it as well we built a uh a 65 ford truck that we built as a shop truck you know we put a big motor in it and straight shift uh didn't make it real nice and for um you know going to the parts store hauling motors to the to the machine shop uh just going to lunch whatever and um come to find out i had done a little bit of history on it and it was actually bought new in uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, and was actually bought new as a shop truck for a gas station in Cleveland, Tennessee. You know, and to me that just that just made it all worthwhile, knowing that it it was a shop truck the first the day it was bought, and it it was converted back into a shop truck after you know we finished uh, making a making a hot rod shop truck out of it.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the cool thing, um, especially maybe with you know what what Will does. You know, on my end, it's it's kind of just keeping the the history alive of some of these cars and bringing them back out for people to see them. Um, you know, John, you and I have kept in touch a number of times over the years. You know, and one of the things that uh, you guys were involved with a little bit. Um, was, of course, when, when I was at Henry Ford Museum and we were bringing the, the Type 38 Lotus back into operational condition. You guys down there have a, a ton of Lotus knowledge and offered a lot of advice on that project. But again, it's it's bringing that history that that car kind of has already created back to life and, and back in front of people. Um, whereas Will, I think it's kind of cool because you're also you know, in, in the things you do, like with the shop truck, that truck was bought brand new as, you know, for the purpose of being a gas station shop truck. And and now you're, you know, you've done it as a a, a shop truck as well, but you've kind of added that history of it being hot rotted. And, you know, it's, it's another kind of part of its life that has a, a unique story and and you're kind of adding to it, whereas you know, in my line, yeah, we're adding to the story of it that oh, it got running again in 2010 or whatever. But it's not like it's having a, almost a new life or a rebirth the way um, that you kind of do it in in making it something uh, almost new again.
1: Yeah, and on 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 that truck, we actually left left the original paint on it. We just restored. The bottom side, you know, updated the suspension, put a, a later model, you know, big block forward in it and and just made it so you could use it as a modern day shop truck, but the outside was still original paint and, you know, the interior, we we actually used the original seat and dash and, and tried to keep all of that, you know, as original appearing as possible and I don't know my words of, uh, p- kind of preserving it a- as much as I could. <laughs> I know, I know y'all's, uh, Derek, y'all's definition uh, of preservation is a little different than mine. We've, we've touched on that before, but you know, it's, it's all, um, we all do it for the same reason because we love it. And uh, ultimately that's apparently probably all three of us, uh, our favorite. One of the most favorite things about it is, is the history of it.
0: Sorry, guys, we went a little bit long tonight, so we're going to go ahead and break this into two episodes. So join us next week on we'll release on Monday morning and hear the second half of this discussion about tools, things we enjoy in the shop, people, things that frustrate us. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, email us at nodrivinggloves at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe to No Driving Gloves using your favorite podcast catcher Follow No Driving Gloves, one word, on Facebook or Instagram. And most of all, please check out our page on Patreon where you can help keep our tires rolling.